Our second lesson for this Lord's Day, and you may have read your bulletin and thought there was a typographical error in there, given the fact that the text for today is the same text as last week. Um, but it, I am returning to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and I encourage you to turn there and follow along as I read. We still have much to say about this portion of Paul's letter. So again, listen carefully now to God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. If you were uh, with us last Lord's Day, we, as I said, read this same text. But due to the depth of material that Paul packed into the first two verses, that's as far as we were able to travel. So today it is our intention to cover the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey was wont to say. As we noted last week, Paul has launched into a new section of his letter that deals with our response to the grace of God shown to us in Christ Jesus and what Christ accomplished on our behalf. This portion of the letter is no longer focused on our justification, as were the first 11 chapters, but Paul is now focused on what the life of the follower of Christ looks like once that justification has been realized in us. In other words, chapters 12 through 16 will make little sense to the unregenerate person. All the things that Paul is about to say will have little relevance to the person who rejects Christ and refuses to bow the knee in submission to him. That person is incapable of seeing these next few chapters 
become a reality in his or her life because they are still answering to their old slave master, sin. It is only those who have been set free from the dominating power of sin who have become a new creation in Christ, who have received the gift of God's indwelling presence in the Holy Spirit, who then begins a work in us, putting to death the vestiges of sin and awakening in us new desires that are pleasing unto God. It's only these who are undergoing this process of sanctification that these chapters will make sense. So the remarks that Paul is making here are to those who have been born from above, to those who have experienced the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit and have responded in faith to the word of Christ that has been proclaimed to them. And to these, Paul urges them to present themselves to God based upon the grace that has been shown to them. And this, he says, is their spiritual worship. They are to be transformed by the renewal of their minds, not conforming themselves to the world that they once knew, but rather to cooperate with the Spirit who is working to conform them now to the image of Christ. And as Paul introduces this notion of being transformed in their thinking, he urges them to keep a right perspective about themselves. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now Paul is certainly thinking of humility here, but not a false humility or a temporary humility that's kind of pulled out on occasions when it's useful, but rather a genuine humility that is true to our core. I believe that it is the kind of humility that is patterned after Christ. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, where he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So when he says to the Romans, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, he is admonishing them to put aside any vestige of pride or conceit that may be resident in their flesh, to empty themselves in a sense, and to weigh the matter before them with a clear understanding of who they are in the sight of God. 
Forget whatever reputation you may have out in the community because you might be a very big deal out there. Forget whatever accomplishments you may have from your career or your academic life or your financial prowess or on the athletic field or whatever it is that you take pride in. Put all that aside and consider yourself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, see yourself as you are in Christ Jesus. When we were in Adam, we were lost and without hope. But in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. But that does not mean that we have any reason to glory in ourselves for having responded to Christ in faith. No. We are to consider ourselves according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God is the reason that we are in this new position. God is the reason that we are forgiven and justified in His sight. God is the reason that we've been made new. God's the reason that the Spirit dwells within us. God's the reason for all of it. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's how he ends chapter 11. And so as Paul is about to embark upon a new ser- or upon a series of imperatives to these believers in Rome, he wants them to realize right out of the gate that the first thing is to present themselves to God as a living sacrifice and to see this as an act of spiritual worship, to not conform themselves to the world any longer, but to be transformed in their thinking, that they might know the will of God, and then to display a Christ-like humility, remembering that they are in Christ because of the grace and the mercy of God. And Paul states these essentials, for they are foundational if we are to have much success in living out the Christian life. If I'm seeking to maintain some control over me, rather than giving myself wholeheartedly to Christ, it will be slow going where my sanctification is concerned. If I'm reluctant to alter my thinking from the wisdom of this world to the wisdom that is found in the Word of God, the chances are better than even money that nobody around me will notice any change in me. And if I am unwilling to set aside my overinflated opinion of myself in order to adopt a right understanding of who I am in Christ and in the body of Christ, then any change that does occur in me will never be seen because I will overshadow Christ. So having laid down this foundation, Paul proceeds to the most meaningful application and expression of all this which is to be found within the body of Christ. Now, Paul does not go into the kind of detail here that he does with the church in Corinth and that correspondence, but his purposes were different there than they are here. That being said, the point is still the same. As believers, we need to see that God has done something that is intended to sustain us in our Christian development and that is to place us in the company of other believers. As God said concerning Adam in the garden, it is not good that the man should be alone. 
We were created to be in company with others, to be engaged with others, to be in fellowship, in communion with others. And the Christian walk is most productive when we have meaningful relationships with other believers. And the metaphor that Paul is fond of using for understanding this is that of the human body. The human body is marvelous when you ponder it. It is built around a hard scaffold that we refer to as a skeleton, and that skeleton protects vital organs that all have essential roles in maintaining life. And that skeleton then is covered in soft tissue that contains a vascular system that carries nutrients to every part of the body. And that soft tissue contains a nervous system that carries electrochemical impulses from one end of the body to the others in a flash. And the head of the body contains a central processing system that controls those impulses automatically even when we are at rest. The body has defense systems designed to keep out foreign invaders, but even if they gain entry, there are other systems designed to overwhelm those viruses and bacteria to mitigate any damage they might seek to carry out. So when Paul portrays the church as the body of Christ, he can easily communicate the idea that while there are a variety of functions within the church, just as there are in the body, and not everyone is gifted by the Spirit in the same way, the members should see the wholeness of the body when they think about themselves. We could explore a variety of issues that confronted the apostle in his pastoral ministry. But frequently, that issue would boil down to individuals losing sight of the big picture of the church and focusing instead upon themselves. Anytime sin entered the camp, it was because someone began to think their needs, their wants, their desires superseded those of the whole. Anytime doctrinal error gained traction in the body, it began with someone who thought more highly of themselves than they ought to have thought, thinking that they alone had the greater wisdom. Anytime fellowship was strained between believers, it was typically due to pride raising its ugly head. Someone took offense. Or someone became concerned of how they would be perceived or someone felt disrespected. And instead of swallowing that pride and displaying a willingness to suffer for the sake of the other, for the sake of the whole body, an issue arose. And Paul's point here is that God has done something unique with us. God has joined us with Christ, but in so doing, He has also inextricably joined us to one another. He has taken disparate individuals and stripped away their shallow categories of meaning, giving them instead new identities and new purposes in Christ Jesus, as well as new callings in the body of Christ. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
Now here is a text that argues with the person who has sworn off the church for reasons that are entirely their own, believing that the church is superfluous to faith in Christ. There is an ignorance there that wilts in the face of God's word. Because Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter declares, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in a couple of verses, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, do I know that church can be frustrating at times? You bet I do. I've got 40 years of experience now. I'll tell you stories. But the solution is not to swear off the body of Christ. Because as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. It is God who has placed believers in this entity that we call the church, and God has done so for particular purposes, not the least of which is to be of service to God, as well as to one another, as well as to the world. And to accomplish this service, God has, by His grace, gifted individual believers with spiritual gifts that we are to identify in us and then use for the common good. And the list of spiritual gifts that Paul itemizes here is not exhaustive, but rather it is to make his point that by God's design, just as there are a variety of people whose personalities differ, so there are a variety of gifts which differ, but which are necessary for the building up of the body of Christ as well as the individual members of it. Now we could look at this list and we may not necessarily see where we fit in here. Again, this list is not exhaustive. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 mention these list of gifts as well as others uh, which are helpful in our own self-assessment and identification. But what we need to see is that God has indeed gifted individual believers with spiritual attributes that are intended for use within the body for the benefit of one another. And when we refuse to offer ourselves to one another in this way, 
we need to realize that we are acting contrary to God's design, and that should give us pause. For we are not responding to the mercies of God in a way that could be described as a living sacrifice. To refuse to be obedient in this way suggests that we are thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Do you consider it beneath you to join with other believers at the rescue mission to serve meals to the homeless? Do you consider it beneath you to walk up to doors of homes in South Roanoke and drop off an empty grocery bag to collect food for the pantry at the community center? Do you consider it a waste of your talent to teach children? When the call goes out for volunteers for whatever the act of service might be, do you have a prepared list of excuses that eliminates you from consideration? Now don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that every person is called to every opportunity. But I've been in the church long enough to know that there are typically 20 to 30% of the congregation that is doing 80 to 90% of the work. What we do not fully comprehend is that God is providing us with a gracious opportunity. To be involved in the work of the kingdom. Not because God cannot accomplish it without us. God can. God does not need us for His will to be fulfilled. But God chooses to fulfill it that way. God's providing us with the privilege of being involved in the work of the kingdom in preparation for what is yet to come. In Matthew 25, when Jesus is engaged in a discourse about the events at the end of the age, he tells the parable of the talents and how the master gave five talents to one servant and two talents to another and one talent to another. And then the master goes away. And when he returns, he calls them to account. And the one with five had done rightly by returning those five with five more. And the master responds to him this way. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Likewise, the two-talent man returned two more. He received the same commendation. But the one with one talent failed to do anything with what had been entrusted to him except to bury it out of fear. While he partially knew the master, he did not understand the master completely. And the talent that he buried was taken from him. He was cast out and that talent was given to the one with five. You see, for those who know the Master rightly, for those who have come into this saving relationship with Christ, God has engaged with them in a way that causes them to desire the things that the Master desires. They desire to be of service, for they've known the mercies of God. They desire to submit to the Lord because the Lord emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant in order that they might be saved. To those who have entered into this relationship with God through Christ, 
they will serve the Lord in a way that brings Him glory and edifies the body of Christ. So whatever our spiritual gift may be, let us not neglect to put it to good use. But let us with all humility seek to bring God's glory, to utilize it within the body. Let us do so with all the energy and zeal and cheerfulness as we possess, knowing that in doing so we are doing the will of the Lord. And let us find joy in serving one another for the sake of Christ who gave himself for us. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me to pray for a moment this morning.